Welcome back for another episode of Lead with Purpose podcast with me, Shishing Yang, where we talk about purpose, marketing, mindset, and how to launch, grow, and scale a purpose-driven business. Right, today we have Sabina Rachimova with us as she is an opinion leader for the future generation of creatives. She studied at Central St. Martins and when she graduated, she actually ended up working with Dior and also she worked with Mary Camtrance. And now she runs her own brand for Sabina. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about her brand in a minute. And she's also consultant with a focus on fashion startups uh, with university, uh, universities across Europe and the UK. And she is now also a lecturer at University of Arts London, uh, focusing on sustainable business concepts to encourage students to disrupt business concepts to encourage her. So that's going to be really interesting to talk about. We love um, disruptions here at We Disrupt Agency and also at Lead With Purpose podcast. And in 2019, Sabina was named Forbes 30 Under 30, and also in 2022, she um, was named as Draper's Wants to Watch for her achievements as an entrepreneur in the fashion industry. So welcome. That was quite a lot of things that you've covered, Sabina. <laughs> and now actually, I need to mention also, Sabina, this year she's co-founded Fashion Revolution Austria as well. So to add to that long list. So welcome, it's Sabina. Short, <laughs> but you know, so it's, it's not my strength to make it easy. <laughs> I love it. You've just achieved so much and it's really nice to see. So we met back in Cambridge at part of, um, what is it called now, uh, the, the Sustainable CISL. The Cambridge Institute for Sustainability, yeah, for Sustainable Leadership. Um, and we met on the uh, accelerator program for Circular Disruptors. Yeah, we love disrupting and disruptors. So let's talk a little bit about that in a minute. But first of all, I like to find out from you where, how did you get to where you are now? Shall we just say, how did your brand start? We, If we start with that, we cover all these other topics in a minute. So if we just think about how did you um, end up where you are and why did you start Sabina? Yes. Uh, yeah, I'll try to keep it short because I know we have so many things we want to cover today. And I'm really looking forward to that conversation. But basically, you know, I do not have any family background in fashion, I do not have anyone working in the creative industry from my family. But I learned a traditional uh, Tatar handcraft from my grandmother. So I was born in Central Asia and my parents are Uzbek and Tatar. And uh, I myself was born in Tajikistan, which was uh, part of the USSR back then. So I grew up, you know, in a very kind of like mixed household with a lot of different cultures, with a lot of influences from different areas. And then obviously the Russian culture as well, uh, since it was part of the USSR and the Soviet Union. So Russian is my mother tongue. And and uh, I learned a lot of the crafty things, a lot of the arts uh, aspects from my grandmother because this was her hobby. So she was actually a teacher um, herself, but she was a lot into making because back then this is just what you did, right? You didn't have access to buy everything. So you would be teaching yourself certain skills and you would be executing those. So I spent a lot of time with her uh, getting to know how to knit, how to crochet, how to sew. 
so and that's how I got into fashion. So this was my very first touch point with what is fashion. So I have a maker's background. And that's the reason I wanted to work in fashion. And that's why I always like to say I have a naive approach towards the industry, but not in a negative sense, more of like that I only saw the magical lens of the beauty of creating something of connecting your emotions your story your you know the 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 whole heritage from your family that was passed on and I come from yeah. generations of very strong women that you, you can't really take out basically <laughs> you know yeah. uh so it was this was kind of like my entry point to fashion and do you still use these skills within your brand Yes. So when the brand started, this, this was kind of like the starter of everything. And the reason I really wanted to be in fashion, because my thought was how beautiful if I can make money with uh, one of the things that I love the most, and that's creating things with my own hands. Right. And uh, obviously, my parents were not very excited about it because later on, we did move to Austria when I was six to Vienna. That's where I grew up. And um, like all the immigrant families, I think my parents did not imagine me going into the arts or into fashion but instead having a proper job let's say put it in brackets and kind of like you know if you give your child all these opportunities of European education and later on the European passport as well they kind of like the expectations were a bit different uh, but I did start to work in the industry when I was 14 so my very first job which was an internship a summer internship was for a fast fashion company in Austria uh, which was called Schups it doesn't exist anymore but they were kind of like trying to challenge challenge H&M back then and everyone and making a local approach towards fast fashion and I was working in their archive um, and since then I never stopped working in the industry so I all I had all sorts of jobs I've worked from retail to logistics to things that don't exist anymore because the internet is around now I know it sounds like I'm very very old but this is like how fast industries change sometimes right so and then when I wanted to study fashion design I um, went to do that you know I applied for the University of Applied Arts in Vienna and was rejected so I had to go into work in the industry I worked as a design assistant again trying just to get my hands on as many things as possible as I said I did not know anyone in the industry. I had to start from scratch of building my network, of understanding how it works, of trying to get uh, support and being backed by people who will be like, oh, I think she could be good in what she does. And the drive for all of it was always the handcraft aspect. My imagination was, I want to be a designer. I want to be creating beautiful things. I want to be selling my products. So this is how I approach it for the longest of times. And sustainability mm -hmm. is rooted in that thought, of course, since I always had such a huge focus on the maker. It just never crossed my mind that for other profession professionals, it's not the case. And this is where kind of like the whole dilemma for me started. What do I want? Uh, what kind of impact can I have? And how can I tell my story best? Well, long story short, I ended up getting into Central St. Martins in London. And that's how I moved to the UK 14 years ago. <laughs> yeah. we, you've gone through quite a journey and it's quite, quite in interesting and inspiring to hear, actually, that you managed to make this happen like you say without any backup and no contacts because I, th I know that a lot of people in within the fashion industry has got some kind of contact that led them through the system and also at young age I think there are yeah. some um, people that are slightly older like me uh, that have gone through it by themselves and then it takes time but the yes. fact that you've gone through this whole process by yourself is so you know like your listeners, if you are listening now, you can't see Sabina. She's still very young and she's done all of these things. On her <laughs> so I, I think it's, um, yeah, well done you for that. Can we, um, so how long have you been running the brand now, Sabina? Eight years. 
I can't eight believe years. it. Yeah. So before that, you were with Dior and also with Mary? Yes. So exactly. I kind of like, I see that more as like a whole journey, like pre-founding and after mm. founding. That's mm. how I divide it. So before founding, um, as you said in the beginning, I had so many different jobs and I, obviously I did train as a designer. So I did my uh, degree in fashion design and I ended up working uh, a lot in the design field in the beginning, but also I always knew I want to start my own business. So for me, it was kind of like going out there and seeing how other people do their things, how corporates work, how luxury work, how fast fashion works, because for me, it's a lot about walking the walk to talk the talk because I'm not from that background and because I didn't have anyone who can introduce me to that or even tell me the stories. As I said, it's a very naive approach, really taking it step by step, really coming into rooms that always feel slightly too big, uh, where people talk about things that I have no idea about, kind of like pretending like I might have an idea of what's happening. Yeah but also trying to adapt and learn as fast as I can. And probably here, you know, being an immigrant child kind of helps because this is exactly what you're doing for your entire childhood when you move a lot with your family. So yeah, it was a lot of understanding how does the system that we call fashion industry work? And then to apply that to my own business in terms of what I can change. But having said that, you're being socialized in a certain way. And when we think eight years back, sustainability started to become a topic of conversation, but it's nothing like compared to what we do now. So even back then, I wasn't bold enough to start my business and be like, we want to disrupt the industry. We want to change with our product. I was very much following the route of two big seasons, trying to be at London Fashion Week, going to Paris for showrooms, trying to convince buyers to get the, you know, to, to get my stuff into Browns and Selfridges and all of that. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing that, right? And there are people who are doing an amazing and fantastic job. But what happened is I lost myself in all of that because this mm. was never the purpose. Because where is the maker in it? You know, where is the traditional handcraft in that? Where is the sustainability in that? There was mm. no space for it. So I would say for the first three years of running the business, it was a lot of trial and error and just a journey finding myself, my voice, and the confidence to actually communicate properly what we need in terms of change in our industry. Where do you think that confidence? Can I reveal your real age, Sabina? Just yeah, of course, of course. I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not secretive about it. <laughs> I just wanted to ask my permission first, uh, because you're still just 33 years old now. So when you started your brand, you were like mid twenties, which is quite young, yeah. and you come across as very confident. Now, where did that confidence, do you think, come from uh, for you? Because you would have. So three years in, that was five years ago, like late 27, 28. Yeah. And a lot of young people that um, I know still haven't got the confidence that you're talking about. So where did that come from for you? A little bit out of desperation, because once you start to realize that you need to claim your space and you need to be a bit louder and this is something that always surprises people, but I'm actually quite an introverted person. As a child, mm -hmm. I was like the calmest in the room, never wanted to talk again because I had so most of my childhood, I had to cope with language barriers because I would not always be, you know, very confident in speaking the language where I would be living at that time. And I think it's just kind of like the out of desperation because I felt like I have so much to say, but if I don't step up my game and uh, really um, advocating for myself, nothing will happen. But also it's thanks to people who did create opportunities for me. And that's why I'm so big today on all the mentoring programs and also trying to pass on my knowledge and my expertise 
and support the next generation where I can, because people like me profited a lot from all these kind of approaches. If I wouldn't have had the mentors, if I wouldn't have people who would open the doors for me and believe in what I do or what I say, this would have never happened. So, you know, it is a very hard and tough journey, but at the same time, I was very lucky because I always came across people who saw something in the things that I do or the things that I say, and they were not shy and they were not gate gatekeeping. They were actually sharing their spaces uh, with me, which made a huge difference. And this is exactly how I want to approach it today, because obviously with every year that you work in the industry, um, you have uh, higher exposure, you have more network. And with that comes responsibility. It's not only that you should be using it for yourself, but what can you actually do to create more spaces for marginalized groups or even your own communities? Or, you know, mm -hmm. how can you make sure that more people from different backgrounds are heard? So, yeah, I think there's a mix of both. A little bit of desperation because I knew I won't be coming far without confidence. And then confidence, let's let's define it, right? It can mean so many things. Yeah. Maybe confidence is something else to me than it is to someone else. For me, confidence is like putting myself into uncomfortable positions and trying to embrace it. It doesn't mean that, you know, I think that I'm the best and the most talented or whatever. That's not confidence. Confidence is just being, I think I can cope with that situation, even though it does feel frightening and scary when I think about it. Do you think um, the fact that you had to move to different countries and that you didn't have the support to achieve what you wanted to achieve within the fashion world, that that actually helped build your confidence? within you so it was actually a blessing in disguise in many ways a hundred percent I think quite often these things you know they have a downside but also an upside to it because obviously you're then being socialized in a certain way and you learn certain behavior types and these can be helpful for certain mm -hmm. industries and mm -hmm. resilience is one of that you know if you've gone through like a long journey of you, where you had to prove yourself where you were not seen as you know the smartest in the room or the best in the room that deserves the best uh, support I had horrible grades in school for example I barely made it through high school so for me today to work in academia for example if I would have told my teachers who were uh, teaching me in high school they would be laughing they're probably still laughing they're like how, how the heck did this happen you know so for sure I think there is something and while you go while you are on this journey you're like I wish it could be easier but then you definitely acquire skills you didn't ask for but they can be quite useful down the line <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I, I just I just find it really fascinating. We hear this quite often where people are really struggling through the early years and then to get to where they are. But there is that innate resilience, like you say, and that builds that confidence for you to, to push forward no matter what, because you know that you've come this far by yourself and then therefore you can go even further and it kind of just opens up opportunities once you get there. And 100%. Amazing. Yeah, and, and, and it can be demanding for mental health, right? And I think this is something yeah. that's fantastic with the next generation, with Gen Zs and beyond that, how the conversation started of what's the price you're paying for all the resilience and for endlessly having to push forward or even achieving certain things uh, until a certain age. You know, we briefly spoke about that. So um, I think there's, again, two sides to it. We shouldn't be kind of selling it as the way to approach life and business meaning the harder you have it at some point it becomes easier sometimes it doesn't yeah. and also there must be another way and again I think this is where it comes down to 
helping each other, having more collaborations, creating spaces for those who might not have a voice in the very beginning, and kind of like making sure that everyone's journey is bearable, you know, <laughs> and, and the industry gets some equality uh, that is, uh, it's lacking really badly at the moment. Okay, can we talk a little bit about that? Maybe, um, as you mentioned a few times that you were an immigrant. Yeah. So am I, I actually, I feel like I'm an immigrant everywhere. I don't actually yeah. feel like a home, which is my home. I can like really, wherever I go, I feel a little bit of an outsider. <laughs> so I can I'm really relate to that. An immigrant <laughs> wherever I go. So how do you feel like um, within the fashion industry, what does it actually look like? How diverse is the fashion industry, not just in terms of nationality, but also um, I think age as well, because you came into the industry quite young without the support. So you had to really work through that. So what have you noticed within the industry in terms of inclusivity, diversity? Is it diverse or is it still quite clicky? How does it look for you? It depends what area of the industry we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. So again, if you would be looking at the manufacturing side, supply chains of fashion products are super complex. The whole fashion mm -hmm. industry is super complex. And I think when we talk about the industry, quite often in our heads, it's the designers, maybe someone who works in marketing. It's maybe a couple of people who are like on the retail side. But to be honest, this industry is massive and it's like endless amount of jobs that you could be having, especially with sustainability being such a massive topic with technology coming through. So it depends on the areas you look at. If you look at manufacturing, then definitely you will see a more diverse group of people. You will see more people of color. You will see um, definitely also uh, age differences between that or even maybe more older people like on that side if we would define it way we spoke about it that what is old what is young so you know uh in an advanced career stage <laughs> let's put it that yeah. way <laughs> and then you have some other areas um like founders for example where it's definitely more beneficial to be male and to be younger and to have certain other attributes. So again, it really depends on where you look at industry. But in general, I think the conversation uh, around um, diversity is happening. But the question is, is it just a conversation or is change happening at the same time as well? And I think this is where we all should be working slightly harder. Again, London, where I live, mm it's a very special place here. So we can't be judging the whole industry just by the way we live in London. In London, we might have lots of different people. And when I go to events, I, uh, you know, do I, I do know I'm an immigrant here, but I don't feel like it instantly because there will always be someone else who is as well. And as you say, we have so many people here as well who have really mixed backgrounds and just like myself, where you wouldn't be able to tell straight away, oh, where's this person from? And then you find out about places you've never heard about. That happens all the time to me when people are like, oh, where is this actually? So I find that fascinating about London, but it doesn't speak for the whole industry. And I work a lot in the German speaking market in Germany and Austria, very different story there, right? So most people are Austrians or Germans. And then if they're not, it's usually second, third, fourth generation. And then as you say, with age, it's obviously better if you're uh, younger, then it comes also, for, uh, you know, if you're a parent, it's more difficult. So you will barely in the beginning, especially meet people who would start businesses and have, have kids and families as well. Right. So there are still lots of obstacles and definitely this one dream that's being sold of who you should be, how you should be and how you should interact. And then if we talk about the fashion industry in connection with academia, it's even worse because academia mm -hmm. has um, historically been, been very elite, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. That's the, that, that's you're part of that world as well because you're teaching at the um, UL, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So how did you get into that, Sabina, from running your brand? 
I'm not trying to like dig into all of the small details. How do you get that? I want to go there. <laughs> no. Randomly, you know, I never even, I never even tried because this is the thing. There are some things in my career that I tried really hard <laughs> to mm-hmm. achieve. I was like, my goal, I'm going towards that. Let's make it happen. And then there are some things that absolutely randomly happen and I'm still surprised. So um, today, yeah, I do work at the University of Arts London, but I also support a wide range of universities across Europe with implementing change to their curriculums, mm-hmm. meaning that I would be coming in when they do curriculum planning and changing and look at it from a climate emergency perspective, from a sustainability perspective in connection with the industry and an entrepreneurial mindset. And I would suggest a new lecture, a new module, a new uh, you know, seminar. And quite often I would be the one then holding it for the first time and delivering it and then getting the feedback if it actually stays on the curriculum or not. So this is like one of the things that I do. And then for UAL, I've been a collaborator for many years. This is the uni I studied myself at, so it kind of like made sense. And it happened quite randomly. I was invited to do a guest lecture about the journey of my own business, about being brave enough to pivot your business. And that was back in 2018, so pre-pandemic. Uh, where I feel like we didn't even know what pivoting means. (laughs) And after delivering that uh, lecture, the course leader back then, she was like, would you be interested in doing that, uh, you know, on a regular basis? And let's say we get you for a couple of hours every month. And I didn't really understand that she's offering me a job. I'll be very honest. I thought, you know how sometimes people be like, let's do this more often. And then you never hear back from them. <laughs> Happens yeah. all the time. So exactly, yeah. exactly what I thought. She's like, let's do it more often. And then I hear from her like three years down the line when she remembers they need someone. But a week later, I got a contract and I was asked to come in and prove my right to work in the UK. And that's how I started to work as an HPL, you would call it, call it as an hourly paid lecturer mm-hmm. uh, with a practitioner based approach. So basically, I would be coming from the industry. And my job was to teach on that particular course, with, which is MA Fashion Entrepreneurship and Innovation, which is a fantastic MA, by the way. Um, and and I, never, I never thought that it is possible to have such a practical approach towards teaching and learning on a postgrad level. And uh, I was actually really amazed. And yeah, this is how it happened. And then since the last year, um, my contract was upgraded. So now kind of like I'm one of the uh, solid team members that is always like on the course supporting certain areas such as sustainability in entrepreneurship mm. but also ethical leadership is one of the fields that I'm focused on and just founder essentials in general so I can uh, talk a little bit about my own journey yeah. <laughs> with students. It, it is quite a fascinating journey and you've done you've crammed in so much uh, within just a few years now where do you see uh, as a lecturer as a, also a brand owner where do you see fashion going from now because some listeners may not know that I used to run a fashion brand as well for many years for over 10 years and now I run a um, social enterprise um, dealing with the, the aftermath of the problems of uh, that the fashion industry is creating or i.e fashion waste so fashion is something that I'm really passionate about or not fashion as such, but the fashion industry, how it works and or how it doesn't work. So how do you see that the, the fashion industry is going or shifting to in the future? Do Is it changing? Because you, like you said before, you started the sustainability conversation what, way back when you started. And has it changed much? To me, it hasn't. So I, I would like to hear the opinion from you and where it's going. Yeah, I, I do think it changed, but I also do acknowledge that I live in a bubble. You know, I'm I'm very much aware of that. So I'm not talking about uh, 
the uh, out of niche approach. Sustainability yeah. is for sure still a niche and the conversation we're having is still too exclusive and we're still not including all the people in terms of accessibility, size inclusivity, affordability. There are so many subtopics to sustainability. And, you know, while it might sound like, oh, I'm a little bit all over the place and working here and there, for me, it makes a lot of sense because it's a holistic approach. So it's the umbrella of the conversation around sustainability, but from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And I feel that this holistic approach actually helps me as well. So quite often I say, you know, it, it might sound like, oh, my God, Sabina is just such a nice person. She likes to help here and to help that. But I'm actually benefiting from it a lot because I'm learning from the students of what their way of thinking is of what the next concerns are for the next generation of how they want to approach things. And I can implement that in my own business and vice versa. I learn on the job of what doesn't work in supply chains, of what current disruptions are, of why the industry should implement certain policy changes. And then I can go into universities and tell the next generation, do not make these mistakes. You know, you can take a shortcut here because it's not necessary. For me, it's a lot about uh, trying to understand of what impact means redefining what we learned about sustainability because we made um, I think the journey a bit too fast of jumping to conclusions and sustainability becoming a marketing exercise with all the greenwashing so it's really like tracking back back to square one where do we start bringing people to a common knowledge level and that's from a consumer perspective with my business where I sell physical products but also from a business perspective with a consultant that I do and the teaching that I do. And then for us, instead of finger pointing, really joining our forces to push policymakers into making changes that are relevant, that do not have a hundred of loopholes, that do not have the lobbying in the background of corporations and bigger organizations that benefit from it. So this is how I see the impact approach and why I'm still in this industry. Because I think otherwise... I probably would have, don't want to say give up because it just sounds so um, mm. so negative. I would have exited it. <laughs> because you'd also talking about degrowth, I think I've heard um, yes. from this conversation, which is something that I did in my brand. At some point I, I exited, as you said, yeah. because yeah. I could not see a solution anymore because it's all about growth. And when we are growing um, our brand and we're selling more, we're kind of in a way causing more damage when we're constantly chasing that growth. And you've previously mentioned in a you know a different conversation from outside of here uh, about degrowth can you talk a little bit about that yes of course oh i have so many heated conversations about degrowth there will always be people who are like degrowth this is a hoax it doesn't work because how do you want to function as a, a business that needs to be financially viable mm -hmm. very valid conversation but i think you need to understand that degrowth does not mean that you will make less money Degrowth can just mean that you're reshifting your business. And that's what we have done. So we have done, as I said, two massive collections per year, fashion week, lots of samples, lots of waste where you weren't sure, is there a demand? Lots of thinking like we might bring this product to the market, but actually no one needs it, no one buys it. But the one buyer asked it in 300 different colors. And then you're like, why did I do that? So again, no justification for the existence of your product. And now we're down to five drops per year only of products that we do ourselves. And then each product that we drop is entirely free from conventional synthetics and has a transparent supply chain. We tell people where everything is coming from. Our claims are verified by a third party company, which is Compare Ethics, which makes it easier for the consumer as well to navigate through the space of communicating sustainability. 
and we do lots of collaborations. So everything that is not like the five uh, product drops, it will be a collaboration with another artist or another business or maybe another industry. So this is how we approach it today. Meaning degrowth happened massively on the physical product side. Mm. But at the same time, while doing that, we grew our service side, introducing consultancy to other businesses that you can book now, introducing educational content, like, you know, helping universities and, and implementing that. That all happens under the bracket of Sabina as well, but it's just two different revenue streams. One is B2C, one is B2B. B2B is service focused only, no physical products involved in that. And B2C is all the physical products in connection with educating people and not finger pointing, but really educating in terms of, look, this is how we do things. If you're interested, come on board. If not, that's also fine, but at least we give you this understanding of how to navigate through that space and vote with your wallet if you can. So yeah. this is what meant degrowth for us, meaning yeah. re-evaluating, what's the demand? What do we need? And we spoke about it previously. I remember last year when we were in, Cam when we were in Cambridge is coming to that point in your professional career, really asking yourself, do I need to produce another set of products? You know, am I adding to the problem or am I solving it? And that's yeah. exactly where I have been for the past five years, trying to figure out what am I solving and where am I becoming the problem myself and contributing to it? Yeah, no, it's, uh, I guess it's not so much a degrowth, a degrowth of your negative impact, but actually it's a regrowth of yeah. your, I like that. Yeah, let's let's introduce a new word. <laughs> yeah, I think regrowth still sounds a bit negative, but I think it's regrowth, isn't it? Because like listening from you describing what you're doing, it's essentially regrowth, and I think that's what I've gone through as well. Is that got rid of the physical products and actually regrowing yeah. a different set of impact-driven goals that we have instead. Right. So I could talk to you about this forever and ever because I love talking about the fashion industry and what's happening, but <laughs> we do have a time limit here. So um, could I ask you finally just a few lessons that you've learned through your plethora of things that you've experienced and also any advice that you've got for someone who is setting out to start a new brand at this point so they don't have to go through the 15 years or 20 years or 30 years that, to learn all of these things that you've learned? Yes, of course. So in terms of learnings for myself, well, I think the biggest one is that you never know everything and you never stopped learning. Uh, I've just done a postgrad degree myself, you know, and that was a, an absolute game changer and really mind blowing because before I, I've done an undergrad, as I said, at CSM, and I didn't do a master's degree, I didn't do a postgrad degree because I didn't feel like I belonged into this whole academia world. And then finally, last year, I was like, actually, I want to try, I want to apply. And I went to Cambridge doing a PG cert there in sustainable business and just submitted my last paper last week. Uh, so this has been a very exciting uh, journey in terms of learning. And that just showed me people might call you an expert in something or people might invite you in and share the space with you because you have a certain amount of knowledge or experience. But it does not mean that you know it all and you should be chilling now. <laughs> and that happens quite a lot and I understand and it's okay to take a breather, but also we need to stay up to date with the things. So this is what I kind of told myself, being really open towards opportunities to learn from others. And these others can sometimes be younger than me, sometimes be older than me, you know, have really different backgrounds. It's really open up my mind for different types of stories approaches and perspectives i think this was like the biggest learning if i choose one and in terms of advice for the next generation i'm always really careful with advice because 
advice it has so much to do with privilege and I think people who mm-hmm. make other podcasts with me or like uh, uh, interviews I, I I'm a little bit of a broken record because I keep saying that sentence a lot mm-hmm. but this is also a realization I had because I asked people for advice a lot in my early years and they would give me advice that I couldn't relate to at all. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, you just do this. I don't have access to that, you know, or I wouldn't even know how to approach that or I'm not as likable, you know, as certain yeah. people. So I'm very careful with advice. But I think if we would do it a bit more general, trying to think outside that uh thing that is privileged where we don't all have play by the same rules, unfortunately, I think it's transferable skills because we live in a very VUCA environment driven world where we have so many uncertainties happening. We have so many, like one crisis chases the next one. So thinking about transferable skills and really knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are can be a game changer because then you know exactly if the first venture you've been working on, it doesn't work, what else can you be doing? You know, if mm-hmm. the job that you thought is your dream job turns out to be a nightmare, it doesn't mean that you failed. It just means that you might have to restructure and reuse some of the other skills you had. So transferable skills is definitely a key. And uh, this is, again, something that touches my personal career. I thought I'm a designer, but apparently, you know, I can also do other things. So, yeah, that would definitely be the two things that I would like to share with the next generation. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Now, if we want to find out more about you and your work, where do we go? Yeah, please find me on LinkedIn uh, under Sabina Rachimova. My name is a bit complicated, but I'm sure it will be linked in the show notes. And the same thing goes for Instagram. You will find me under Sabina underscore Rachimova. If you want to try and check out the brand, it's sabina.com, S-A-B-I-N-N-A.com. And you have uh, Sabina underscore com. You'll find us on Instagram as well. So it's the best ways are Instagram, LinkedIn, and the website directly. Brilliant. I will add all of those into our show notes. And if you haven't checked out Sabina, dot com just yet do it it's amazing everything i see i, I just want to buy it all but i'm a ban <laughs> from buying i haven't bought anything new for the last now six years so i can't well buy it i keep looking at it, it was like, i want it i want it i want it you can, so. you can also you can also rent our stuff you don't have to buy we have oh, that. oh that's good <laughs> now i'm gonna look again because i'm looking because i keep wanting everything so that is fantastic thank you so much sabina for being here today and sharing thank your experiences you and your journey with us it's been great thank you so much have a lovely day all right bye thank you so much for listening to this episode i hope you enjoyed it and if you would like more tips ideas and thoughts on how to launch grow and scale a purpose-driven business and also hear from other purpose-driven entrepreneurs about their journeys please follow the podcast and remember lead with purpose